coming up in this episode. What you hear is pure misery. Two years ago, the Yazidi genocide took place. The United Nations in 2014 declared the crisis to be level three, and this means it's the worst type of crisis, everybody mobilize, everybody help. Two years later, it is still a level three humanitarian crisis. In an emotional interview from her office in the heart of Washington, D.C., the representative of the Kurdistan regional government to the U.S. puts this crisis into terms that Washington and the rest of the U.S. can understand. For us in the Kurdistan region, our population has jumped by 30%. Imagine Washington, D.C.'s population jumping by 30% in a very short period of time. And those newcomers have nothing except the clothes on their back. This dire situation, where it stands today, and what it means for U.S. national security. Next, on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by TrueCar. Pricing information is great and necessary, but there's more to buying a car than just price. There's the actual buying experience, and to enjoy a better one, you have to go to a True Car certified dealer. They are there to help you find the car you want, and they are what make True Car unique. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can lock in guaranteed savings off MSRP and enjoy a better buying experience. In fact, True Car users save an average of $3,279 off MSRP. And True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with one of True Car's 11,000 certified dealers nationwide. Over 2 million True Cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, Visit TrueCar.com or download the TrueCar app to enjoy a better buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. We've got a very graphic situation. San Bernardino. Upwards of 14 people that are dead. We are now investigating these horrific acts as an act of terrorism. Paris. An attack on all of humanity. The Islamic State. I'm back, Obama. They want you to imagine them in the shadows as something greater than they are. Hostile nation states. They can't inflict mortal damage to the United States. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. This is Target USA. America in the crosshairs. Whether it's anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, or terrorist, America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. The population here in Washington, D.C. is about 660,000. Imagine if it suddenly swelled to 900,000, almost a million people. And none of the new people had homes, money, jobs, even a change of clothes. That's what happened in Kurdistan. The population grew from 8 million to more than 10 million 
as two million displaced people from Iraq and Syria flooded into the region. Some of you may be asking the question, why should Americans care about this? Well, aside from the fact that those people who lost their homes, wives, husbands, mothers, children, and other family members are human beings and deserve some compassion, there's also the issue of why it happened in the first place. It's because the Islamic State group wanted to exterminate the people that lived there to send in their own hand-picked people. And why did they want to do that? Because they wanted it as a base to launch attacks against its enemies, which include the U.S. Nobody expected the horrors of ISIS or Daesh. And I speak as a Kurd from Iraq, and we Iraqis, all of us, have seen unspeakable cruelty and horror way before Daesh came along. But even we are shocked by their violence and the way they wallow in the cruelty that they impose on other people. Bayan, Sami Abdul Rahman, the representative of the Kurdistan regional government to the U.S., has her own story about what happened the day the Sinjar Yazidi massacre began. And you should be forewarned, the audio dropouts you'll hear are not technical difficulties, it's just grief. I felt deep, deep sorrow for the people of Sinjar, for the Yazidis. And to go back to my own personal story, it was my first birthday without my mother. And to me, my mother symbolizes Sinjar, and Sinjar symbolizes my mother, because she spoke the dialect, she taught us the dialect, she taught us the cuisine. Everything about her was Sinjari. And it seemed to me... It's, it's okay, take your, take your time. It seemed to me that my mother was dying again. I'm really sorry, I know this is hard. If we need to stop for a moment, we can. Just take a moment. Sorry. It's, it's completely I never okay. I talk about personal stuff. Two years after the genocide, that region is still blanketed with the pieces of millions of shattered and interrupted lives. And Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman is one of those people. It's rare for Rahman, who is very businesslike, to get personal about anything. But the fact that she did is illustrative of just how deep the genocide cut into the collective psyche of the region. But still, she felt the need to apologize, incorrectly feeling she had put herself ahead of her constituents. I don't usually talk about what how I felt personally, because it is so unbelievably insignificant. It's, it's not even worth mentioning, frankly, compared to what others have gone through and what they're going through right now. I mean, even now, there are through over 3,200 3, Yazidi women and children who are missing who we believe are being tortured and sexually abused and raped on a daily basis. So this is why I usually avoid talking about my own personal feelings because it is truly insignificant compared to what happened to them. I also want to say that for 
for others who are undergoing this genocide, for them too, it must be a very painful time. For the Assyrians, for the Shabaks, Kakes, all of the others that I mentioned earlier, the Christians, it is, source, it is also a very traumatic time for them. And nobody has really recovered. We're all still in the middle of it. Uh, the Yazidis particularly, it's an ongoing genocide. Daesh. What is Daesh? We've already seen what they're capable of, but give us a good sense of what we don't know about this organization. Daesh or ISIS uh, in Iraq is really a marriage or an alliance between Baathists and Islamist extremists. Um, as you may know, Saddam Hussein's political party was the Baath Party. Um, it was really a fascist party that believed in Arab supremacy, a kind of a national socialist, Nazi-like uh, political party that had Iraq under a brutal, genocidal dictatorship for over 40 years. And so after the liberation of 2003, um, the Ba'ath Party was disbanded, um, there was a process of debathification, which some people see as a failure in Iraq, and that uh, it meant that many people who may have joined the Ba'ath Party simply because they had to, not because they believed in it, and they didn't really have blood on their hands, they, under a dictatorship your choices are very limited. So some people see the, the debathification process as a failure and that maybe it contributed to some of those people being disillusioned with the system in Iraq. Others say that Prime Minister Nouri Maliki's uh, policies further alienated the Sunni Arab community. So Prime Minister Maliki was still Prime Minister in June 2014 when ISIS overran Mosul. And his policies in the years leading up to that were very negative. They were very negative for the Kurds. We in Kurdistan felt that we had been marginalized. There wasn't a power-sharing process in Baghdad. And the Sunni community also felt alienated and many of their leaders were in fact hounded out of the country or imprisoned. So there could be many contributing factors as to why some Sunni Arabs thought that it was okay to join these, Arab, these Muslim extremists who wanted to create a caliphate. U.S. intelligence sources suggest that the planning for ISIL's so-called caliphate and the actions that unfolded in 2014 actually started years before in the aftermath of the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. And according to Rahman, there is just as much blood on the hands of politicos as there is on the hands of terrorists. There are others who are Baathists, true and true, through and through, who have blood on their hands historically and have blood on their hands today. And they are the masterminds of Daesh. They are the ones who know the country, they know the territory, they know the psyche. They are the ones who plan. They are the ones who control the foreign fighters. The foreign fighters are really cannon fodder for these people. So it is a, an alliance between the Baathists 
and the Islamist extremists who have come together, declared a caliphate, and they need a territory for historic reasons or Islamic reasons, a caliphate must actually have a territory. So they need a territory to declare their caliphate. But there's also a very political agenda here. It's not just an Islamist extremist agenda. And when I say it's a marriage between Ba'athists and Islamist extremists, we can actually see it in some of the tactics that they use. I said earlier that this wasn't the first genocide. There have been at least four, if not <laughs> twice as many, genocides previously. So this is a, a strategy, a policy, a tactic that they use. Um, the way that they torture people, literally the torture methods, are methods that we saw under Saddam Hussein. The way that they use terror, Saddam Hussein didn't use terror the way we see terrorism today. But that was an era where we didn't have iPhones and Blackberries, where we didn't have Facebook and Twitter. So his kind of terror was internal, it was domestic, and it was done under the cloak of silence, cruelty and silence, as is the f title of a very famous book on Saddam Hussein. So we're seeing the same tactics, only today they are using YouTube and the internet to publicize what they do as another platform for terrorizing people. Whereas in the old days under the Ba'ath regime, it was uh, known internally in Iraq what they did, but the, the rest of the world either didn't know or chose to ignore. We've heard a lot about the depravity of the organization, the Islamic State, but we have very little understanding about why they've burned people alive, why they've drowned people, why they have cut people's heads off. But Rahman has some insight into why some of these activities may have happened. After Sinjar was liberated, they found some tunnels that the Islamic State group had left behind. And then what was found, and, and we've, we've seen pictures of them and reports, you, you can see where, for example, ISIS fighters had slept because there were blankets, there were lamps, that sort of thing. But also a lot of drugs, and clearly some of the ISIS fighters need to take these drugs that make them high, perhaps give them a sense of fearlessness, or just take them out of the situation so that they're able to do these, go on these suicidal missions or undertake these terrible, cruel acts. And I think that, as I said earlier, many of the foreign fighters, not all of them, many of the foreign fighters are really cannon fodder. And so they, I think, give them these drugs to encourage them, to give them the courage that they truly lack to be able to conduct these terrible missions. Where are we now in this situation? This, as you've mentioned already, is the date of observance of this great, just great disaster and atrocity that continues because the Islamic State group is still around. It's, hasn't, it hasn't been defeated. Where are we now in your mind politically and from a humanitarian point of view and from a cultural point of view moving forward. We've had a lot of successes against ISIS. First and foremost, 
the air of invincibility, the myth that ISIS were larger than life, unbeatable, that myth has been broken. The Peshmerga have defeated them on many battlefronts. And every time the Peshmerga have liberated somewhere, they have not gone back. Whenever we've liberated, we've been able to hold it. And that's very important. We have been able to liberate many areas, including Sinjar, which was key for us, not only in terms of territory and so on, but symbolically, we wanted the Yazidi people to know that we would get it back for them. As of this podcast, the Islamic State group is still active, and it's going to be years before it's completely wiped out, if ever. In the two years since the genocide, the U.S.-led coalition has flown over 90,000 sorties, conducted 14,000 airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, trained 30,000 Iraq security personnel, taken back nearly 50% of the territory ISIL held in Iraq and 25% of the territory in Syria. In the meantime, Rahman and everyone involved in the process of rooting out the Islamic State group knows it's going to take years before life returns to anything close to normal. And then there's going to have to be a reconciliation process. But in the meantime, she's got a strong message for the Islamic State group. I've been to some coalition meetings and the commitment to continuing to fight Daesh or ISIS is there. It's not going away and it's not weakening. I think these are really important factors. And anyone from Daesh who's listening, I hope they hear that. We will continue to fight Daesh until they are completely defeated. And we will continue to cover this story as it unfolds. But here's an interesting note. As we concluded our interview with Rahman, it was about noon. And some of the many churches located along the historic portion of 16th Street in northwest Washington, D.C., their bells began to peal, symbolically suggesting they are still there despite ISIL's attempts to silence them. And speaking of Washington, D.C., coming up in our next episode. Every single morning I open my eyes, my goal is to make sure people are safe. No loss of life, no injury. That's my goal. That includes my police officers. That includes my community. That includes visitors uh, of this city. Washington, D.C.'s top cop, Kathy Lanier, chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. The FBI has warned Washington can expect more terrorist activity. She'll explain to us how she's preparing for it. These are threats that um, you have to just make the assumption could be uh, brewing in your community at any given time. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA, the National Security Podcast.